0: Mary.
1: <laughs> Bonjour Dan. There's been some quite big news I guess for holiday makers over the weekend hasn't there?
0: Big big market moving news in the world of summer holiday indices yeah my summer holiday index is trading way back to the pre-COVID-19 highs now which I'm feeling pretty pleased about.
1: Excellent news and have you booked something?
0: Yes, we have actually. We have opted probably to drive actually down. We've got a couple of credits actually with airlines for all the flights that were cancelled, but opted for the driving option and spent all weekend on the Eurotunnel website, watching it crash in front of us, but finally managed to nail down some tickets on that. We are booked as well.
1: Very nice. Very nice.
0: So we'll certainly be getting the usual dose of croissants, baguettes, cheese, and all those sort of things, hopefully. Fingers crossed.
1: Good chance to practice your French accent.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs)
1: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: So today on Investment Uncut, we're joined by special guest, Ryan Hughes, Head of Fund Selection Platform and Wealth Manager, AJ Bell. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks very much for having me.
1: Ryan, it'd be really helpful if you could tell the listeners a bit about your role, but also about AJ Bell more generally in terms of the sort of client base and, and what you do for them.
2: Yeah, of course. I'm just starting with my role. So I'm Head of Active Portfolio. So the essential day job is meeting fund managers, getting out there and researching investments, putting together our active portfolios and researching our buy list. In terms of AJ Bell more broadly, I guess we're best known as a platform starting off with a lot of pension heritage. And we operate in the UK market. And in two parts of that market, one part is split to D2C customers who are using us for our research and investment ideas. And then also on the advisor side, then we're running passive strategies, active strategies, model portfolios, funds, all different kinds of investments for clients that are using a financial advisor.
0: So two quite different strands to what we do. Cool. Okay. And I'm really looking forward to getting into a chat about all of those things. Before we get into all that, perhaps you could just tell us one thing that we should know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile
2: let's go back in history the one thing about me you should know but won't find is that age 14 for my sins i qualified as a football referee so i started doing a lot of refereeing when i was a mere teenager which was character building fun and in some respects has made me very well prepared for refereeing many an investment committee in the various roles i've had i probably just needed my cards and my
0: whistle to help me get through those i was about to say that there is some definitely some transferable skills there into the world of definitely refereeing fund managers and boards and committees and all those sorts of things but no I think yellow cards and red cards would be good innovation in a lot of the investment committees I've seen to be honest
1: yeah and I guess in the last couple of months well actual football referees have been pretty quiet presumably you've been quite busy
2: Yes, this job never stands still, does it? The world keeps on turning and there's lots to do and every day is today an opportunity to learn something. So we've been speaking to a huge amount of fund managers over the last three months. I would, in some respects, say since lockdown we've probably had more manager contact than we would have done normally and the technological advancements and the fact that we can have this conversation like this just shows how easy it is to have those manager conversations. The one thing I would say, I very rarely praise asset managers, but I'll do it briefly and get out of the way early in this conversation, is I think actually they've been really, really good at communications through the crisis, very proactive in offering manager access in the way that they've used this type of technology, getting manager comment out. I think it's been a really good exercise for them and a steep learning curve. And most of them have actually stepped up to the plate.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. And I guess the other one on the sort of practical operational side, I suppose, have you found that most of them been able to maintain basic functions from home and those sort of things? Definitely. I think it's actually quite an interesting
2: period. If I look back over the last three months, we started off with lots of questions to managers about how are you coping? How are you working without seeing your colleagues? And actually now we're getting to have the conversations of, are you actually starting to talk about going back into the office? How will you go back into the office? And actually, more philosophically on a bigger picture is, well, you used to go to the office five days a week. Do you think you're going to do that going forwards? And lots of managers telling us it's been a really good period for reflection. And they've realized that ultimately, probably 80 percent of our job is thinking, is reading, is digesting, and that an office environment is frankly dreadful for that and that doing a lot more of that away from home and being able to reflect it's been really really powerful so i think a lot of asset managers we're talking to are telling us that there's a little bit of a change in the dynamic and the way that they work expecting to come in the coming months
1: yeah we've been doing some work internally as well actually on that sort of subject and whether you're more productive at home or at work and i think probably it's fair to say the departments that are more focused on conversations and collaboration and that sort of thing have been finding it more of a struggle at home but actually the sort of research based teams are finding things better at home because of what you just said the thinking space is a bit easier there isn't it?
2: Certainly. I mean also I mean I just think about you know from my perspective and many of my colleagues it's the commute it's the time saved it's the inefficiency I'm happier I'm I think I'm healthier I'm sleeping better I'm exercising more because I've got time so all those things and I think all of that combined actually makes the brain function better and, and maybe in time we'll find that we actually make better decisions out of it.
0: Yeah I couldn't agree more that's fascinating. Taking a little bit of a step back, I guess, Ryan, just thinking about your approach to fund manager selection generally, I mean, it sounds like you're selecting active funds for a huge range of different sort of individual circumstances. I'm guessing some people want very high growth sort of portfolios. Other You might be looking at more income focused or more cautious type portfolios. So how are you sort of approaching the whole, whole question of fund selection there?
2: It's a huge universe. It's a massive topic and there's thousands of thousands of investments to research and start with. So you've got to think about how do you shortcut. I think in some respects, we're helped a lot by the fact that probably 80% of active managers that do this job, frankly, aren't very good. And so it's actually quite easy to shortcut a lot of the process. That sometimes sounds a little bit flippant, but I genuinely believe after doing this for 20 years that The vast majority, sadly, of active managers don't deliver, and that's backed up by many an academic study. And I often joke the only difference between me and my passive colleagues is they think 100% of managers are rubbish, and I just think 80% are rubbish. For me, a lot of it comes down to understanding how managers think and how they behave. great believer that just about every single manager has some kind of style bias. I've very, very rarely met an active manager that is genuinely rotational and can adapt, really well adapt different market styles. And therefore, I want to understand how they act, how they think, and give myself a really strong frame of reference for how they should perform in different market conditions. And if I can get that frame of reference up front, before I've given them any money, the worst way for anyone to learn about a manager is to give them some money and watch and how many people have learned about that the hard way over the last year with some high profile examples. So do the work up front, understand how they invest, and then I think you've got a really good starting point to put portfolios together and think about those different risk tolerances and strategies that you talked about at the start.
0: Is that sort of philosophy extending across Sort of equities and fixed income and, and sort of multi-asset covering all those different areas. So a huge, huge variety in there.
2: Yeah, definitely. We want to have a relatively consistent framework that we can apply across asset classes so we've got consistency in our in our application and then ultimately consistency in our output so we do go through the same approach for equities for fixed interest and other areas that we look at i would say we are fairly traditional in the way that we build our portfolios and put them together so we don't tend to look at a lot of alternatives Or i think Perhaps philosophy and process, if we're looking at very niche assets, is perhaps less of a relevant way of doing it because it's perhaps much more about the underlying asset class drivers than it is about the way that they're selected. But we find that that consistency of approach gives us a solid framework to build on.
1: And are there any trends that you notice when you've done your sort of huge amounts of research and you've found that 20% of good managers? Are there typical characteristics that you see either in terms of portfolio construction process, but also kind of fund structure, firm structure, that sort of thing?
2: Yes. I think when we look at the firm structure, I'll tackle that bit first. I think there's no magic formula. I very much like the creativity and innovation ability of boutiques, of course, but you can get that same creativity and innovation within a big company as well. Maybe if you're looking at fixed interest, you might argue that a strong team of analysts and the ability to do, look at all the covenants and so on is really important. Maybe when you're looking at small cap, maybe it's about manager experience and the knowledge of management teams and who they've worked with over many years. So I think you do need to kind of flex the way that you look at different things to find the ideal strategy for you. The one thing I would say it's interesting when I think about manager research. So for me personally, I think it's a combination of art and science. I certainly know people that will say it's purely a science. For me, the art side of things comes into it and it's a people industry. And therefore, I I look a lot at the human characteristics of the people I'm interviewing and try and find what I would consider to be some common success factors, things like a hunger to learn, desire to win, but in a a healthy sense, self-reflection humility, all these types of characteristics that I think over time I've seen would be fairly consistent in successful fund managers. That's not to say they're the only ones. I think arrogance is a dangerous characteristic when it comes to fund management because you, you end up making mistakes and therefore very humble managers that recognize that they're probably only one day away from the market teaching them a painful lesson is a sensible way of approaching what we do.
0: That's really refreshing to hear you say that actually, because I was about to ask how you factor sort of self awareness and humility and those sort of things. And I guess you know, what you say makes perfect sense, and I, I totally agree with you. But the difficulty is that. Less self aware people can often sound more confident, can't they? And can sort of present a much more, can often weave a narrative that just can seem incredibly compelling. Whereas someone who's sort of being a bit more humble about it and have a bit more humility and kind of saying, well, yes, we could lose a lot of money tomorrow kind of thing, the world generally doesn't often reward those kind of people because they can sound less convincing.
2: We worry when we hear things like, I'm right, the market's wrong, without that kind of real strength. But also, what we do to try and counter the point you raise is a lot of our meetings, two of us will go to the meeting and you'd be amazed the amount of times you walk out of a meeting where actually two of us have heard different things. It's very easy when you're sat there one-on-one, you're wrapped up in the questions, you're making your notes, and you're thinking of your next question, you're listening, you're typing, and actually you're missing what's right in front of your face, which is things like body language as well. So two people for us in a meeting, I think nothing would go in our portfolio unless two of us have met the manager, and nearly always that will be at least one of those meetings would be two people in the room together at the same time, just to try and pick up those subtle, softer factors that often you can get drawn out. And also that will mean meeting manager on a few occasions to try and unpick. Maybe they're very polished that first time and you really want to pick under the skin at some more stock examples, try and rile them a little bit, what makes them see how they react under pressure? There's many, many different ways of doing this. And certainly where, one place where I worked before, we've not done it yet at AJ Bell, is actually they got a police interviewer in to try and train the kind of question techniques, interrogation techniques to draw out what you need from, from managers. So lots and lots of human softer factors, as well as just crunching the numbers and seeing what it tells you.
1: Yeah, we've seen that before, actually. We've not quite got to that stage either, but I've certainly seen that as a technique. The other thing I always find fascinating is the interaction between people from the investment manager firm. So, for example, if you have the lead portfolio manager and a quite junior member, it's very interesting to see how they interact together. But also, if you have a so-called collaborative approach and then you can see that one person always speaks over the other, it's kind of quite telling, I always find.
2: Yeah, that's right. And we do try and take a 360 view. So we don't just want to meet the lead fund manager. We want to meet an analyst. We might want to meet the head of compliance as well, the head of operations. Depending on the firm and where we see, we want to really build up a 360 view and try and get almost live a day in the life in the firm to sense what the culture is. Because I genuinely believe that culture in a business is very, very telling. And over time, a bad culture will be found out. You might not see it the first time, you might not see it the second time. It might take you a few years to
0: find that, but a bad culture will ultimately lead to bad results. That's fascinating, isn't it? And I'm totally with you on that about culture, but I guess if anything, the issue with culture is it's become a bit quite trendy and a bit of a buzzword, isn't it? So I guess I can see page one of every pitch deck now is sort of saying pride ourselves on our brilliant collaborative team kind of culture thing, right? So yes, again, it's another area where you're trying to get beyond the spin, of a manager. I guess it's like you say, it's looking out for the things that are not said as much as anything, right?
2: Definitely. And we see it in our junior analysts that might go to a meeting that comes out with a very different impression to someone who's got the gray hairs and has been around the block a few times and has heard the story before and seen the polished marketing presentation and the fund manager that's been trained to within an inch of his life as to how to pitch.
0: So it's about picking all of those things. Do you do things like listening? Are you a believer in sort of attending some of the managers internal meetings sometimes and trying to gauge the conversation there or because i know people go different ways on that some people think that that can be a bit staged or some people think it's really valuable
2: yeah if we think it's appropriate we're happy to do that also getting research notes and so on all to build a big picture if we think it's additive to the process then we're very happy to do that i do think a lot of the time it can be quite staged and everyone's aware of who's in the room, that everyone's on their best behavior, what you really want. I want to see how managers react under pressure. And probably the best way to do that is for me to sit down with them face-to-face a few times and really pull apart the portfolio and see what they're thinking.
1: I mean, I've always been a strong believer in meeting managers face-to-face before putting them on a buy list and that sort of thing, like you said. Do you see that changing? And I haven't decided my view on this either, but do you see that changing in the sort of new world where there's a lot more remote working? Or do you still think actually when it's possible to meet face-to-face, that is a very important part of the process?
2: Someone that has a two-hour commute each way, I think doing it remotely sounds fantastic going forwards. Actually, it's been quite interesting over the last few months. When we've been doing manager meetings like this, one of the things that's happened is the manager meetings have come alive because the manager's got all of the information at their fingertips. People might walk in with a stack of paper and they've got their portfolio and they're rifling through it. But we're talking about equities, we're talking about bonds, and they're there saying, oh, hang on a sec, I'll just look this up. I'll share my screen. Here's my research. Here's what we're looking at. And actually, I found the meetings become much more interactive doing it like this. Also, I think the manager has been perhaps calmer and happier to give their time because they haven't come over to our office. So they haven't got the worry about, while well, I'm out the office. And so I think they've been more efficient with their time as well. So I see pros and cons. It's always nice to meet people face to face. But at the same time, if we're working with a manager in the US, well, this is the way we would work with them anyway. And we might meet them when they're in London, but they might come to London once a year or, or maybe less, depending on, on how it is. So I think this is a case of adaptation and actually using it to your advantage.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, isn't it? Because getting away from the linear pitch book kind of meeting is, we probably, probably will agree, that's a good thing. But I've sort of seen that as well, the way that people can use some of the tools that we've, we've had them for ages, but just using them a bit better to dive into something, drill down, get the information right then and there. Whereas so many other meetings, you'd be like, oh yeah, we'll follow up with that. By the time you do, a few days later, everyone's forgotten about it anyway. And it's kind of not important. Whereas if you can get it right then, it actually makes a difference to the conversation. You can move things on. So that's pretty interesting, isn't it?
1: What about ESG? Does your client base have strong views in aggregate or do you have a kind of quite a big range of focus on that?
2: We haven't detected strong views as yet. I would say there's a growing interest that has yet to really translate into a compelling trend in terms of buyer behavior. And I say that both looking at our D2C side and our customers there, but also our advice side. So I think there's definitely a case of, of a lot more interest. And that comes from both when we're talking to asset managers and what they're telling us, and when we're looking at it the other way. I do find this is a topic that's really interesting. 20 plus years ago, I wrote my uni dissertation on on ethical investing, as it was known then. So I watch with interest the debate that's changed over 20 years. One thing I observe right now is we're having a very similar discussion about ESG now as we had 20 years ago. So I don't find the conversations moved on a huge amount. The names of it have changed but still the same debates about profit before principles. Do you take an exclusionary approach or a positive approach? This is the same stuff that's been around years. The bit that I still think the industry's really got to grapple with is getting some kind of common definition as to what ESG is. You speak to one asset manager and it means one thing. You speak to another asset manager, it means another thing. One includes nuclear power because it's clean. One excludes it because it's dirty. So, you know, you've really got to get under the bonnet. And I do think it's interesting that, the, as I understand it, the EU is currently trying to come up with a standard definition that it would actually put into regulation that would apply a badge for funds that, are, if they follow the regulation, are able to call themselves ESG, and if they don't meet their definition, won't. I'm never a big fan of over-regulation, but I think in this case, it might actually help start to filter out the very many different flavours of ESG that there is.
1: There's clarification, at least, I suppose, isn't it?
2: It is. As I understand it, and maybe we, you know, funny, is that the European Commission and the European Parliament are currently arguing themselves over what meets the definition of ESG. So they can't agree. We don't know where we stand. And until they come to some kind of agreement, we're all in this limbo of having different flavours of ESG, depending on who you talk to.
1: And I guess you see that, don't you, when you look at ESG sort of rating providers. So a company like MSCI will give you a rating on how good a company is on ESG factors. And the way that MSCI thinks about rating a company on ESG factors is different to the way that FTSE thinks about it. And you end up with the same company getting very different scores from different places, which is exactly that problem. Yeah.
2: Yeah and and if you take an exclusionary approach to it then exactly that you may well be filtering out very very good businesses that actually are, would should rank very highly on the ESG criteria because of that. I did talk to one fund manager recently who said that a very good company got excluded on that approach because the ESG scoring system said that they had an unlimited bonus and that was a very bad thing, the reason they had an unlimited bonus is because they didn't pay bonuses, or it was unlimited, because it was actually zero. So one set of criteria actually excluded those companies. And so your negative screen filtered them out. So you've got to be very, very careful.
0: Yeah, that's always gonna be the difficulty with an exclusionary type approach, isn't it? And I guess you've got a bit of tension there between two approaches. One is the sort of rubber stamp approach of trying to approve funds that meet certain criteria. A different one, I guess, is maybe call it a more value-add approach where you're trying to seek out managers who are doing it particularly well or or putting that forefront of the process and debate the merits of either, can't you, I suppose, really?
2: Definitely. You certainly can. And, and this is it. And until we're on a journey as an industry about all of this, so it's I kind of think of it as a scoring system. I think everyone does ESG to some degree or another. If they don't do G, then they shouldn't be in business. There's the lightest of touch of ESG that's happening everywhere. And then it's just a degree to which it's applied. And I'm sure it won't be long before every fund, every investment has to have the ESG badge of how they are doing it. And I think that will come once the EU get their act together and agree on this definition.
0: Yeah, it'd be great to see it being communicated really well to underlying investors, wouldn't it? And I guess that's the exact sort of challenge that organisations such as AJ Bell have, because individual people, when you ask them what's in their pension, they do care. And often, in my experience, are quite surprised to discover how much oil or tobacco might be in it, for example. So it's finding a decent way of bringing them into the conversation and helping them understand rather than just being some again past the glossy marketing of this being sort of a brilliant fund in that regard, but really understanding what's in there and what they want to do.
2: That's where we can, you know, as a business, it's about balancing that education side of what we do and helping customers along the route, you know, facilitating the ability for those that already have gone on that journey to be able to transact easily on our platform and invest in, in whatever they want. I think there's a real mix out there, but certainly I think when we talk to relative newcomers to the world of investment, they are crying out for more and more education, more and more help. And that starts right at the basics between what is a fund, what is an investment trust, what is an equity, right through to then, okay, well, we don't like oil, we don't want it. Where do we start? Or we want to only invest in companies that make a positive difference to the world. Where do we start? There's so much more that the industry
0: can do. Taking a slight tangent there, perhaps, I mean, one thing that I think that you've been commenting quite a lot in the press on recently is the subject of dividends or lack of them or the fact that they're, they're being cut. I mean, that's it's an incredibly topical issue, isn't it, for all investors, I guess, particularly those focused on income. So what's your sort of current take on that situation? Yeah,
2: I mean, it's very much a moving picture, of course, with different companies with announcements. I don't think any of us could have imagined a world where we would being such you know, huge dividend cuts and governments effectively mandating that dividends don't get paid so this is an alien environment for all of us historically throughout all of my career investing in a dividend strategy was typically seen as a lower risk type of investment because you had the security of cash flow underpinning underpinning what you do and of course that's been turned on its head for many people so i think security of dividend becomes really important now, structure of investment that you use to, to access that, if you still want dividends, funds versus investment trusts suddenly become very, very topical. The ability for those investment trusts to use reserves versus funds that simply pay out what they get, and of course we might be seeing up to fifty percent cuts in payments in open-ended funds, whereas some of these investment trusts have got nice reserves that are able to smooth that and grow the dividends. So, choice of investment vehicle becomes key, but also actually thinking about the underlying holding. Dividends, as we know, many people have learned, dividends are discretionary and payments from bonds are contractual. There's a difference between the two and and yields might not be that attractive to some, but the security of getting a contractual payment on a bond may ultimately be worth more in the long run than the variability of a dividend from an equity.
0: Couldn't agree more. That's been one theme that we've been discussing a little bit. I guess you have to go a little bit further down the risk spectrum to sort of get to comparable income levels. But there's a trade-off there. And I think there's an argument to be made that could have a little bit more kind of high yield risk in in some of these income sort of portfolios than maybe what's been typical in the past.
2: I think it's not just also in high yield. If you look at some of the yields on investment grade bonds, the spreads have become pretty wide over the last few months. And even in short-dated investment grade, you situation not that long ago when a 3% yield was suddenly available on short-dated sterling investment grade and the security of that versus a 4% yield on an equity that might suffer a 30% cut. Well, suddenly investment grade short-dated bonds look very attractive. So I think there's, it's a very much a moving picture, but I think many people have learned it's not all about Seeking out the highest yield in a low yield environment, if that makes sense, in a low interest rate environment. There's a danger that comes with that, and swapping income per capital is also a. You know, we see some of these strategies that have uh, covered call options and things like that. You're swapping one risk for another. So I think it's a case of treading very carefully through that.
1: You mentioned just then spreads widening the last three months, and I guess that's the bit we haven't really talked about yet. Is what's been happening this year? And um, talked about you've had lots of manager meetings we don't necessarily need to cover sort of what happened in markets, but in terms of managers sort of activity and reaction to market conditions, was there anything that you, I guess, any trends in that, but also anything that surprised you?
2: I think the biggest surprise, or let's say the, perhaps not the biggest surprise, the biggest frustration we kept encountering with managers was those managers that were positioned for, for tough times, have been very frustrated that the tough times lasted about two weeks in markets before central banks rode to the rescue, that actually they didn't get the full benefit of their defensive positioning come through. And that's true in both fixed interest and inequity there. So I think they would have been hopeful that the volatility and negative markets lasted longer than they did for them to really reap the benefit. And of course, we've seen a phenomenal bounce back since central banks basically said, well, when we say we'll do whatever it takes, we actually meant that and a lot more. We've seen the Bank of England announcement, we've seen the Federal Reserve announcement in what they're doing, stepping into bond markets. These are unprecedented times. There's no textbook that we can read that tells us how this plays out. That makes it really difficult. It means there's no manager we can lean on with their experience to say, well, I've been here before. This is how I think it'll go. And I can point to these periods of history. So sometimes that means it's quite difficult talking to managers that we have to start with a blank sheet of paper. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, very, very difficult times for where we are today.
0: It's funny, isn't it? I always find that I always think it's a bit of a bad look when you get managers sort of hating on the Fed and, and just generally kind of hating on the stimulus and bailout stuff, because that's kind of, I just think it's a little bit, lacks a bit of self-awareness in the general broader global picture to kind of say that. But I can understand where it comes from in a way, because like you say, it, people who are positioned for a more defensive environment might feel that they've done the right thing, but haven't been ordered in the way that they ought to have, I guess, which has been the issue.
2: You come back to that, this goes right back to the financial crisis of, is there such thing as an economic cycle anymore? If central banks step in every time there's a there's a sign of trouble, ultimately, surely that has to be at some point destructive. We thought that point was maybe coming. And then, of course, the virus has meant that they've just stepped in even more and doubled down. And that means that yeah, bad businesses, in many respects, don't go bust. Normal capitalism, as brutal as it is, doesn't kind of go through the system. Of course, the virus this time around, that might be a little bit different than it does shake out the weaker businesses that are over leveraged. But at the same point, with central banks stepping in and buying bonds directly, yeah, does that again just push that out further out into the longer arse? I'm not sure yet is the answer, I think.
0: That's tough for evaluating managers, isn't it? Because plenty of managers with very good track records and very good pedigrees and very sensible processes have to be honest, underwhelmed a little bit over recent years, I suppose. And I'm sort of caught between saying, well, I can understand that. But having relatively little patience for sort of managers, sort of creating excuses kind of thing. One excuse, I don't know if you've come across this a little bit this year, is I've seen some managers who were saying they were defensively positioned and that hasn't quite worked out like that this year. And the defence has almost been like, oh, it was the wrong kind of volatility, It was, which reminds me of the wrong kind of leaves on the line sort of thing when the trains are late, which I've got relatively little patience for. But like you say, we're in a completely new environment, so maybe I should be more patient. I don't know. I think it comes back to this
2: slightly lazy narrative that i've read quite a lot is in a down market active managers should outperform that's just a really simple approach that assumes that all active managers are the same what that means is that your higher beta managers may be won't outperform it. It might mean that your deep value managers, you know, If we if we're experiencing a strong cyclical downturn, won't outperform it. There's so many nuances within active management, and and so often people talk about them as this kind of one homogenous group. And that's why I said right at the start, yeah, we want to think about the style biases, think about how different managers are formed. Because frankly, right now. Or over the last 18 months, value managers should have been underperforming. And if they were outperforming in that period, I'd be asking them some pretty serious questions. Either I've misunderstood or they're doing something that they really shouldn't be doing. So that frame of reference becomes really important so that you know when your quality manager should be doing well and when they should be doing badly and when your value manager should be doing well and doing badly.
1: So accepting that all managers are doing different things, what sort of activity have you seen from managers in the last few months? I guess there's a few broad strands where you could be re-risking, de-risking, or sort of sticking tight. Have you seen any trends in that space?
2: There was a very clear trend right at the start of the crisis, which is managers saying we're doing nothing. So we were talking to them lots about, well, you're taking advantage of these big market falls. And at that point, the data was so patchy as to what was actually happening that they just said we can't really adjust our portfolio because we've got nothing to base it on. And then as soon as the central bank stepped in and said, here's basically unlimited liquidity, then we saw an immediate shift in behaviour of saying, right, okay, we're very happy buying UK house builders there because we think in the long run, these are going to be okay and they're priced for destruction or EasyJet can go for nine months, never flying another plane. A strong business like that will come out the other side of this in a good position while its competition will go bust. So I think we saw very much two phases of manager activity, but of course there were very, very few that were brave enough to really step in when the market was on its knees and falling up to ten percent in a day. That's the trouble with you know fund management is we get so much crowding, we get so much fearful behavior. And yeah, you know, you're managing career risk, it's human emotion, it's behavioural side of things, so many different things going on in that.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. The two examples you just mentioned were were obviously both UK stocks and that sparked a question that they're wanted to come onto, I guess And I know you cover global managers as well as UK managers. Are you seeing a shift in the way clients are looking to allocate? I mean, I guess historically there's been reasonably high allocations to UK among UK sort of individual clients. Do you see that continuing or are you trying to shift them to global? How are you looking at that?
2: We operate on a global basis. Absolutely. We've got significant overseas exposure in our portfolios. We look to balance the currency risk. I think a lot of this really picked up in the run-up to Brexit when people started thinking about that overseas versus domestic earner story. And I think people are actually awareness of what is actually, if you just go back to the UK for a sec, to illustrate the point, is there's an awareness of what is actually in the UK index and that at domicile or index listing is actually no reflection of economic exposure if you're buying BP as we know I haven't seen too many oil wells in the UK that are pumping out much on a global basis I haven't seen many iron ore mines for BhP you know, these are global businesses and so we want to look on a truly global basis and think about that exposure diversify our currency risk I think that's something again people have learned in the last few years it's just how currency exposure can be very important or very damaging if you get it wrong.
0: We've seen that again this year, haven't we? I mean, that's, the currency exposure this year has obviously really helped people. Those, those people have been invested globally, but been UK investors. It's been a, a nice little tail risk hedge, which cushioned things a little bit back in March, April time.
2: Yeah, definitely. We were much the same in our exposures in February, when markets were pretty much closer their peak. we're adding dollar-based US treasuries, medium to long-dated, as a, exactly that, as a hedge to the portfolio, again, just to diversify it might get the call cool wrong on the bond, who knows, but the currency is there as another dampener to risk. And I think that's really important. Is definitely underappreciated by a lot of investors.
0: Cool. One question I really wanted to come on to before we finish was that tricky question of firing managers. When is the right time? You've got an underperforming manager, but there's some question marks around them. I think that's an issue that a lot of fund selectors and investors have the situation they've been in. The question of when is the right time is just one of those trickiest decisions in business, isn't it?
2: It is. For me, it's all about frame of reference that I've I've mentioned a couple of times. Underperformance is not a negative thing in its own right. Underperforming when you should be underperforming, if you understand the style, is perfectly acceptable. And I would suggest that if you look at my portfolio, if I haven't got some managers underperforming, I haven't done my portfolio construction right, because I've probably got some some pretty poor diversification going on. So I'm actually quite comfortable with underperforming if I understand why, and it's underperforming when they should be at the right time. I do agree with you. I mean, we look at other factors. We look at the organization, the organizational environment as a potential risk and a threat. And it may well be, particularly with so much consolidation going on in asset managers, at the moment, that could easily be a trigger for us to remove a manager we look at strategy size, both too large and too small. We look at liquidity has obviously become incredibly topical over the last 12 months. Again, that's something we would look at very closely. And really just managers performing outside of our expectations. And to that, I don't reference outperformance or underperformance is outside of our expectations, which is what worries us, not necessarily the direction of that.
1: Yeah. So, Clearly this is a fast developing area. If listeners want to catch up with what your latest views are and find your stuff in the future, how can they find you?
2: Lots of comment out there in the market. Quite lucky to be pretty well quoted in in the press. So you might see me popping up on your your weekend papers or midweek papers. We do lots and lots of things at AJ Bell, both on our own podcasts, on articles that, that we're writing. So all the usual Twitter, LinkedIn, as well as many other industry publications, I'm in that luxurious position of being able to have an opinion on everything. And I generally do have one on just about everything, but I can't guarantee it's going to be right or wrong.
1: Okay. We won't hold you to that then. <laughs> and Ryan, any recommendations
0: for the listeners in terms of books, podcasts, series, anything?
2: I like to escape from the day job. So I'm not doing this. I take myself away from the work. I know some of my colleagues love reading finance book after finance book. I'm the reverse. I like getting it, putting everything we do down. So I'd make a recommendation. I love history and I love reading about things that people do that amaze me. So I'd recommend anyone to look up an author called Ben McIntyre, who writes a lot of history books. He's written a lot about spies, the Cold War, World War II, and those stories of daring do are the kind of things that really inspire me to get away from this.
0: I've read one of them recently. What's it called? There was one about the really famous Second World War spy, Russian guy. Oh, God damn, I can't remember the name of it now. It's not Red Notice, it's a different one.
2: My favourite one that I put down is called Agent Zigzag, who was a, if it's possible, a triple agent, which, which was, uh, is absolutely fascinating. So it was a famous film in the 70s, but it's not that well known. But I would, the book blows your mind in terms of what these people, the risks that they
0: took. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that one
1: out. Yeah. I feel like every time a listener recommends something, Dan, you've already read it. And Ryan, finally from you, what would you say is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: We could come at this from so many different angles. I think for me, the thing that people forget the most is time. Time is an investor's best friend, really. I mean, the vast majority of people are investing either in their ISAs or their pensions. They are taking, they're investing for a phenomenally long time and they forget it. They get wrapped up in all of the noise, all of the stuff that's going on in the market. And actually, if you're in your pension, you might be investing on a 30, 40 year basis. So time is your friend and don't forget it when markets become very volatile
0: right well that's a fantastic point to finish on ryan thank you so much for your time today been a great conversation really enjoyed it thank you thanks for having me
1: thanks ryan that's all we've got time for this week on investment uncut please join us again next week for another episode thanks